Hello and welcome to the Mile End Institute podcast. I'm Martin Frampton, a reader in modern history at Queen Mary University of London, and I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Professor Sean McConville and Dr. Maggie Skull to discuss Sean's book, new book, Irish Political Prisoners, 1960-2000, Braiding Rage and Sorrow. Firstly, some introductions. Sean McConville is a Professor of Law and Public Policy here at Queen Mary University of London. He has researched and taught at major universities on both sides of the Atlantic and has published extensively on the history of punishment as well as contemporary penal administration, including his trilogy on Irish political prisoners. The book for which we're discussing today is the third and final volume. Dr Maggie Skull is a historian of modern Britain and Ireland who has held teaching and research fellowships at KCL, National University of Ireland, Galway and Syracuse University, London. Maggie's multidisciplinary research explores the relationship between religion and politics in the contemporary period, particularly the soft power influence of religious leaders in British and Irish politics after the Second World War. And Oxford University Press has published her first book, The Catholic Church and the Northern Ireland Troubles, 1968 to 1998, which won the British Association of Irish Studies Annual Book Prize. So we've got two perfect guests here to discuss Sean's book. Welcome to you both, and thank you for joining me on the podcast. So to begin, I thought it would be a sort of nice intro, Sean, if you just wanted to say a few words about what brought you to write on this subject and why you committed so much time, so much effort, so much labour uh, to the to the story of writing this trilogy on Irish political prisoners uh, since the 19th century. Well, um, I fell into it by accident. Uh, I've been writing a history of punishment for a long time now, various volumes and outputs. And I came across a category of prisoner that um, caused great problems for the Victorians. Victorians um, believed that imprisonment should, amongst other things, repress and degrade uh, the offender. And the problem was that a whole category of people uh, clearly had committed offences for what might be called conscionable reasons, certainly unselfish reasons. not reasons of moral turpitude or gain or whatever. And there was a vast range. It ranged from um, ritual offenders of the Church of England, such as Reverend Green, too many bells and too many smells, uh, for which he was sent to prison. Uh, People who wouldn't let their children be vaccinated against smallpox. There's an echo of some kind there. The famous moral crusader, um, Stead, who was editor of the Pall Mall Gazette, who broke open the horrible story about um, the trade in virgin girls in London. And because the government was embarrassed, they sent him to prison for some technical offence. And then the Home Office found itself lobbied by the bishops of the Church of England at Histad uh, when returning from lunch. So And so on and so on. And now, amongst all these people were the Irish, uh, various categories of political offender, Uh, And by political, by the way, I mean politically motivated. There is not, unfortunately, a proper word in the English language that probably isn't German to uh, encompass the politically motivated. doesn't mean to say that they're political offenders, as we would understand it, and many, many of them use violent methods. And I thought I would probably write a chapter um, or two on the Irish, and 25 years later, I find I've written three books and um, I'm 25 years older. Thanks, Sean. And as you arrive at the end of this um, trilogy, what what are the most significant things that stand out to you about this uh, story of Irish imprisonment at the hands of both the British state and more latterly an Irish state of the last two centuries? One of the issues that came out, particularly about the British, was that they don't read books. British administrators think everything starts anew. I mean, it's a classic of bureaucracies. They have all these records, but they begin again. So that came out. Lack of acquaintance with with Irish political history, I guess. Another fact that came out to me very strongly in the modern Irish state was the very different footing on which the Irish administrations dealt with political offenders. Subversives was the approved term because, of course, the institutions of the free state era uh, and the Republic of Ireland, as they successively were known, they claimed to be Republican. So they preferred to refer to the others as as subversives. But those institutions really 
were accepted by the electorate as legitimate. I mean, they may have disagreed with the politicians and they regularly threw them out and, and changed basically between Fianna Gael and Fianna Foyle, but they believed in the in the structure of the institution. In Northern Ireland, there was a huge degree of alienation by the Catholics from the Northern state, almost from the beginning. And I think the history of unionism um, is a history of failure to resolve that alienation. And all of that encapsulated the experience of the prisoners. One of the things that stands out to me, and you've sort of already hinted at it, is a sense of the state in whatever jurisdiction sort of almost constantly chasing its tails, always a sense it's kind of behind the curve, really, of where the imprisonment issue is. And, and was that your sense of writing it, that, that one of the overarching stories here, I guess, is of the state struggling to get to grips and often failing, largely failing to get to grips with the question of dealing with the imprisonment of, as you say, kind of politically motivated offenders? Yeah. I mean, very early uh, on, when I started writing volumes Two, when I was in the middle of volume two, I, I had quite a bit of contact with um, prison administrators in Northern Ireland. I do remember an occasion, and, and I lent uh, my the earlier volume, the first volume, to uh, a senior civil servant, uh, and uh, he read it. And he said, this ought to be made obligatory reading for anybody that's trying to run a prison in Northern Ireland today. And he was particularly struck by the fact that when Daniel O'Connell was imprisoned and then released, he was released on such and such a day, went home and had his dinner, and then went back to prison to be released again, but as part of a political pageant. And he was really struck by the fact that what should have been an instrument of the state actually became Dan O'Connell propaganda. Uh, and in a sense... The story um, could be wrapped around the experience of imprisonment over a period of 150 years. You lock people up. Uh, you hope you've put them out of public sight. Uh, you've put them into sequestration, uh, into an oubliette. But it's the opposite to an oubliette. It is actually something that projects them onto a political sphere, provided, provided there exists outside um, a social and political community willing to accept and to magnify that message. Sean, what an incredible achievement to have not just one book of this sort of heft, but to have three in a trilogy is an incredible accomplishment. And so it leads me to the question thinking about this book in particular, Irish Political Prisoners, 1960 to 2000. What do you think the study of prisons reveal about a conflict society? Or to put that question a different way, are prisons a mirror for a wider conflict in a society? Thinking more specifically here about the troubles in Northern Ireland and then how they sort of spill across the Republic of Ireland and into Britain as well. I'm, I'm not entirely happy with the mirror analogy here because one of the things about prisons is that, I mean, perhaps I ought to qualify that and say apart from real-life television and so on, people are really not familiar with what goes on in prison. I mean, they may think they are. And one of the purposes of imprisonment was really to take people off the streets, but also to take them out of political debates. It didn't reflect a society, say, like Britain, because prison population in Great Britain was, for most of the period uh, up to the Second World War, minuscule. They were actually in a situation where they were closing prisons. And people just didn't know very much about prisons. They didn't, therefore, concern themselves terribly much about what happened to the prisoners. In Ireland, however, it was a different situation. And there the mirror may work a little bit better. Almost everybody who was in government in the 1920s and 30s had either been in prison or knew somebody who'd been in prison or was running a prison. Um, and for the Irish, it was much more a kind of roundabout situation. I mean, there are lots of people in the Irish Civil War, which ran from after the treaty uh, until um, 1923, who previously themselves had been in prison. Uh, and somebody like Garrett Fitzgerald, who was uh, Taoiseach in Ireland, his father had been in prison. And he talked to his father about imprisonment. And his father had an interview with a former political opponent, uh, Eamon de Valera. And de Valera um, knew the father, and he also knew the son. So when Garrett Fitzgerald 
went to see the president of Ireland as de Valera had become, he said most of the conversation was about whether whether his father, i.e. Fitzgerald's father, had been shackled to de Valera by the right hand or the left hand when they were transferred from Dartmoor prison to Lewis prison. So there's a kind of prison intimacy there. They all knew it. So Ireland, I would take, I, I would give a very different take altogether uh, from um, the British take on imprisonment. And, the, and to that extent, the mirror is a correct one. But in Britain, it wasn't. I just wanted to move a little bit to thinking more about this book. And it's striking to me how much of the focus of the book places on internment in the early 1970s. Uh, it's definitely a key point that needs to be untangled, the impact of internment that it had on wider society, had on the Republican movement itself. Uh, even so many scholars, though, will then go on and point to Bloody Sunday really as the catalyst for IRA recruitment. But of course, as we know, Bloody Sunday was an anti-internment march. So do you think the story of Irish political prisoners in this period sort of always goes back to internment without trial? It certainly had a gigantic impact, uh, a massive impact. I mean, uh, it was uh, Brian Faulkner's uh, um, magic bullet that was going to end the civil strife and the violence that had started um, in 1969. In August 1969, it really got into its stride. But instead of that, he actually shattered the polity in Northern Ireland because the vast majority of, of uh, the nationalist stroke Catholic community uh, had, had not and had never been involved with the activities of the IRA. It was an isolated and uh, it was almost like a family-run uh, outfit. It was a handful of families that kept it going in Northern Ireland, uh, one of which, by the way, was uh, the Adams and Steele family. Um, but once internment came along, um, it confirmed, I think, for nationalists, the, it, not that it needed confirmation, but it kind of magnified for nationalists the lack of accountability of the unionist administration. And you were just taking people uh, with very, very little uh, evidence in some cases. You were, you, you were shattering their lives. You were taking them out of employment. You were taking them out of their homes. You were putting them in a position where they probably, outside the nationalist community, could never be employed again, and you were doing all that administratively. I mean, it was a shocking, shocking thing to do. Uh, and I would go so far as to say that if any single thing brought down Northern Ireland, it was the decision to uh, initiate internment in August 1971. It's striking, I think, as Maggie says, how much, in a sense, Faulkner seems to me is the kind of the anti-hero of your book, um, and you're pretty scathing in your your assessment of him, and of obviously then of internment, and you talk about you know it being a policy disaster, a kind of failure of imagination. You describe internment as a tar baby that kind of contaminates kind of everything that it, it comes into contact with, and in a sense, then the British difficulty in trying to get off the hook that you you see Faulkner basically as having having put them on. In retrospect internment looks like such a disaster and such an obvious disaster here in a context in which you'd had this movement for civil rights, you have the unionist state removing arguably the most fundamental of, of civil rights, habeas corpus. Why do you think that Faulkner went down this road and were were there plausible alternatives open to him that he could and should have taken? I am humble enough to realise that we all look back and we all know what we know now. And uh, I hope I haven't been... Um, uh, so arrogant as to condemn Faulkner in that kind of godlike way. But I do believe at the time, at the time and with the information that he had, he should have worked out that this was going to be hugely inflammatory. The, I mean, inflammatory even is the wrong word, explosive. The model really was an imperialist model. I mean, internment had been used all over the empire as incidentally uh, had uh, interrogation in depth, the euphemism for torture. And the belief was that um, you could cut the head off the snake, you could round up the troublemakers, and you could lock them up, and there would be a deterrent effect, there would be a containment effect, and the whole of the Republican movement would collapse. 
The difficulty was that once you did it, the constitutional nationalists couldn't speak to you. Uh, I mean, the nationalist stroke Catholic anger was so great that any constitutional politician who spoke, who as much as spoke to unionist politicians at that juncture, lost all credit. Now, he should have known that. I mean, that would have been easy to work out. He was a professional politician. He was talking to constitutional nationalists. He should have been able to work that out. I'm a little bit more puzzled about the British here, Ted Heath and his advisors as well, uh, about why they bought this. Uh, they seem to have been impressed by the fact that Faulkner was a businessman, he was a practical person, and uh, he could get things done. And they seem to have bought the message. The other thing to put into the package is that unionism, and we've seen it, may I just say this last couple of weeks, has only got one movement open to it when it when it comes under intense pressure, and that is a movement to the right. And Faulkner was hemmed in to the right, uh, had very, very few options politically. Uh, and this was one thing that he could do that would neutralize his right wing. I very strongly take the view that Faulkner was responsible for all the citizens in his polity, Catholics as well as Protestants. And he should have thought about that before he went down this road. It's interesting you mention the imperial context and, and perhaps return to that a bit later, kind of the wider resonances of, of a lot of this. And I guess one of the, the facets of internment and why it's so significant is it does cut to the heart of the nature of Northern Ireland um, as you say, as a polity, the relationship of the state to its citizens. And one of the things I think your book brings through is the relationship of internment to the Special Powers Act. And so in some senses, seeing internment as the fulfillment of that strand of approach to law and order within Northern Ireland that, that's rooted in the Special Powers Act. Do you just want to say a bit more about that, Sean? There's a difficulty. I can understand that the Special Powers Act was brought in to deal with border incursions and the existence of the northern state. It's just celebrated its 100th anniversary. I can understand that. But what I found puzzling was that once the emergency passed, and these were really quite draconian powers, I would just bracket that with similar powers existed in the South, absolutely, absolutely single, you know, very similar powers. But um, once the emergency was passed, the reaction of the... Northern Ireland legislature of the Stormont legislature was not to say, oh, well, we've taken exceptional powers, there's tranquility now, we will discard those powers. It was, in fact, to say, let's make those powers permanent. That speaks to a mentality that, in the end, it has to be destructive. In retrospect, of course, you can see the rise of civil rights in the US and and elsewhere, but they seem to think that they could sit on 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 the third of the community that did not agree with them, and in fact they excluded that uh, third from the political process largely. I guess they imagined, well, um, we can just bottle them up and bottle them down, and that will be it. Uh, and that is a colonial mentality. They just believed a that Westminster would let them get away with it; and there'd never come a time when they'd be called to account. And secondly, that the nationalist community could be uh, suppressed in this way. Sean, just to sort of follow up with that as well, thinking about the incidences of ill treatment of detainees during internment um, and sort of the dramatic state cover-ups of what was happening there. We think about the Compton inquiry and you describe it as shameless whitewash. What do you think this really means in the context of Northern Ireland? How does this also sort of fit into this idea of dealing with the past that we are thinking about. Um, are we going to address these, what was happening in these prisons, what was happening in these cover-ups, or, or do we need to pivot to another direction? These last few months have, have raised it again and again with great urgency. Speaking as somebody who spent quite a lot of time in courts as well as uh, in libraries here, uh, the 2,000 unsolved murders in Northern Ireland are rising from the conflict. Um, there are endless hurts, there are endless um, um, terrible damages inflicted on, uh, on civilians, on, um, on combatants, if I can extend that term, and on the security forces. When the Irish Free State was established um, in 1922, one of the first actions was to pass an act of indemnity 
a parallel measure was passed in um, in Westminster. And the impact of this was really to amnesty British soldiers and, and, and uh, paramilitaries such as the Black and Tans and the auxiliaries who had killed and misbehaved and burnt and destroyed in Ireland to amnesty them and to amnesty those who had committed murders and bombings and so on in the Republican cause. And that was done. I mean, it took a, a year or two to clear up the anomalies, um, but it was done. My own belief is that we're, we're never going to be able to disentangle the events in Northern Ireland. We're never going to be able to satisfy people's demand for justice, whatever that may mean. I think it means finding the guilty person and so on. You're just not going to do it. And therefore, I, uh, I actually strongly favour an amnesty for all of those who committed offences during the Northern Ireland conflict. My guess is that the 1998 peace process was so touch and go that they did not want to introduce this issue as something because it would have just gone on and it may have damaged the whole peace process. But in an ideal world, you would have said, it's over, double lines at the bottom of the accounting book, and that's the end of it. Whether that will happen now or not, I don't know. The government is introducing this measure to, it's a kind of indemnity. Um, I suspect that political trouble will continue around it, but I don't know. I mean, do you think it's possible to have, and people have talked about, you know, different models of truth and reconciliation. I mean, do you think something like that is possible? I honestly don't know enough about the successes and, and the failures of the truth and reconciliation movement, but it was bracketed by the remarkable personality of Nelson Mandela. I mean, this was a transformative personality and a transforming moment in South African history. There has been nothing like that in Northern Ireland. And I don't know anybody um, whose shoulders are broad enough uh, as a politician to carry that. So I think this is going to have to be an administrative measure. To the extent that people uh, want justice, they're going to they are going to have to talk among themselves and they're going to have to approach justice in a different way. You know, another key figure of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission was, of course, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And, you know, something that's close to my own work is the role of religious actors in conflict societies. And you spend quite a bit of time in the book speaking about the role of the Catholic Church in trying to sort of advocate for prison conditions or manage the prison situation. And I was wondering if you could speak more to that. Why do you think the Catholic Church is just so entangled in what was happening in prisons, not only in Northern Ireland, of course, but also in the Republican of Ireland, as well as Irish prisoners in Britain? Well, of course, they, this was, uh, it was both a pastoral um, duty to attend to the prisoners and their families, Ireland at that time was uh, a very different place uh, with an intensive um, uh, degree of religious observance. I mean, both Catholics attended weekly mass and, and had a very close relationship with their clergy. Um, so the pastoral part of it was very strong. And that comes out a lot in the, in the work of people like, um, like Dennis Fall, uh, Father Dennis Fall uh, and Raymond Murray. They knew the families, they knew the young men, and I think they lamented what had, be, what had befallen on them. I think some of their logic was a bit specious. I mean, they, they seemed at times to almost be in a position where they were abnegating moral choice, because not all young men who lived in Northern Ireland joined the IRA or the INLA, and it almost seemed curious to me that um, the Catholic clergy should be such social determinists when they came to their prisoners. But I think they had a genuine concern for the physical and social welfare as well as the moral welfare of these young men. They saw uh, them being ill-treated by the sec security services. And by the way, I'm not in any way palliating uh, uh, the IRA atrocities that were going on at the time. Uh, but they saw young men being arrested. They saw them being um, beaten up in special branch interrogation rooms. And there are very many indisputable instances of this happening. Um, and therefore, they actually seem to think that a lot of these young men were on a kind of conveyor belt, the end of which was to be found in the Mays prison and McGabry prison. And they thought it was unjust, and they wanted to 
fulfill their religious duties in in attending to their welfare and their spiritual welfare. I think they're well. I don't think they're particularly successful in that regard. By the way, I don't think either. I think the IRA, unlike earlier generations of the IRA, was not was not religiously observant. Um, this was a generation of young sixties men, and they became more and more socially radical in their beliefs. They they did not uh, adhere in the way their forefathers had to the uh, requirements of the Catholic Church. So I don't think they had great success there. I'm not even sure they had a great success when it came to welfare, with one exception, and that was the hunger strikes, which were preceded, of course, by the strip strike and and the dirty protest. That they brought to the attention of the world uh, in very forcible terms. Yes, of course. And we can think of, you know, the famous scene in Hunger, Steve McQueen's film, where the prisoners are attending mass, but really they're all just talking to each other. And of course, the priest is trying to deliver some sort of uh, sermon, if you will, and no one's really paying attention. But I think the other important point to make is the experience of women in the prisons and the fact that Monsignor Raymond Murray was the prison chaplain in Armagh prison for such a long period of time. And you make this point in your book talking about the strip searching of women in Armagh and then later McGabry. And you say that after 1986, that the issue of strip searching doesn't really become a, doesn't really maintain the same sort of level of maybe scrutiny for international audiences, even if those may be smaller in number. And I wanted to think about this idea. And does, does this sort of ceasing of strip searching to be in a more public consciousness stop because that Raymond Murray is no longer the prison chaplain when Armagh closes in 1986 and the women are transferred to McGabry. I found his um, uh, his comments on the Armagh women, um, a good portion of whom were in either for murder or conspiracy to murder, and the description of these, uh, I think it was Dennis Fall, actually, these poor wee girls in Armagh. They, for their own reasons, used the term girl, but these were grown women, and they had entered into a paramilitary organization, and uh, their organization had smuggled explosives into prisons, concealed in body orifices, uh, and, um, you know, they were capable of doing the same. So I I found his um, his criticism of the uh, of strip searching of women unreal in you know lots of ways, very unreal in lots of ways, and I think that that was very much part of the times as well. Raymond Murray was a, a stone in the shoe of the administration. There's no question about that, whatever. And they were delighted when Armagh Prison was closed uh, and the women were transferred to McGabry. So I think his uh, his pamphleteering, and he was a tremendous pamphleteer. I mean, he was a throwback. They both were, Fall and Murray, to the 18th century. I think they're very talented pamphleteers uh, and could pick up an issue and run with it. But once um, uh, the women had been transferred to McGabry, that, that, took, uh, um, that took Father Murray out of the situation. But I think more than that, um, by 1986... The concept that that these women were we girls, I mean, just became absurd in the general population. They wouldn't regard themselves as we girls, although it was very convenient for them at times to talk about themselves as girls. So I think there were social changes and attitudes towards women and uh, attitudes, therefore, towards the strip searching of women. And, you know, this was a, a broader social change, perhaps. For sure. I think there was even debate in sort of feminist magazines and feminist periodicals in Britain and Ireland over the same issue of some saying strip searching is, you know, fundamentally against human rights and others saying these women put themselves there for what they had done outside of the prison. And this leads me to this speaking again uh, about religious actors. Obviously, you spend a lot of time on the Catholic Church, but there's fewer mentions of Protestant ministers and their perhaps experience in the prison or even with loyalist paramilitaries in the prison themselves. Do you think this is happening because of a disconnect between loyalist paramilitaries and Protestant religious ministers for the most part outside the prison as well as within it? There was some, but of course we use the term Protestant in Northern Ireland and and, um, 
the, the confessional mosaic in Northern Ireland is very complicated. You have two predominant Protestant churches, Presbyterian Church and the Anglican Church of Ireland. I got the impression that those uh, loyalist prisoners who took to religion were fairly apt to take to Baptist-type sects uh, because the Baptist confession offers the possibility of remaking one's life in adulthood, of um, Christ entering into one's life and transforming that life. And a very famous uh, um, loyalist terrorist, uh, Billy Mitchell, became uh, an ardent born-again Christian, uh, and genuinely so. The other interview that I had uh, that struck in my mind was with um, a Presbyterian minister. And uh, speaking to him, uh, he confirmed my impression, which was that uh, the clergy were always far ahead of their uh, of their flocks in understanding and trying to live out the Christian message. And he said, my dilemma is this, that I belong to a, um, a religion that uh, uh, preaches uh, the existence of the elect. And that made it difficult for the Christian message. And secondly, I minister to a congregation that has lost its members to uh, paramilitarism. And I think that the vast majority of Protestant uh, uh, churches and congregations viewed loyalist paramilitarism with abhorrence, particular abhorrence. And of course, they viewed Republican paramilitarism with, the, with abhorrence. It wasn't that they weren't trying to reach out, uh, but it was more difficult for them, I think, than, say, a sacramental religion where there are regular observances and, and, and connections. I think the Catholics, because of the nature of their ecclesiology uh, and the nature of their theology and the nature of their liturgy, found it easier to reach out to their members than some of the Protestant denominations did. I think you're also making the point here about choice as well, right? Of course, Catholics are going to only have the Catholic Church to go to, and we've already discussed there are a multitude of Protestant churches within Northern Ireland at that time that if for rites like, say, a funeral, that loyalists need to go to someone, that they could really go to multiple different sects of Protestantism, if you will. But that, that really leads me to the question then about loyalists. And so much of the scholarship on the prison experience in Northern Ireland, I believe, focuses really on the Republican experience. And your book brings in loyalists in a really important way. And I was wondering if you could speak to that of what, you know, perhaps some might consider the loyalist experience always reactionary to the Republican prison experience. What would you say to that? I think that's partly true, actually. I mean, I... I in order to get into these the ranks of loyalist um, prisoners, uh, I, I, I went at a very early stage to Gusty Spence, who is a kind of prominent figure uh, of loyalist imprisonment. And um, I mean, he's a curious man. He was very intelligent and he was reflective, but he'd spent a whole lifetime um, since he committed murder polishing his story. Uh, and it was very hard to break through his kind of full paragraphs he came out with when you interviewed him. But he did say to me that uh, he read a lot of Republican books, um, just to put it in a, a square bracket here, a very scholarly square bracket, his library came up for sale. And one of the, one of the sources I cite in the books is um, a catalog of, of Gusty Spencer's library. Uh, which came up for auction. And you'll find in that uh, list of books a great number of Republican books. And what he said to me was, the Republicans wrote the book on how to live in prison. And so he studied them intensively. His own philosophy moved from one of bigotry, really, uh, and I've no doubt it was that, and just a visceral hatred of Catholics and, and nationalists, to one which was much closer to the ideology of the official IRA, minus the constitutional change, and um, so therefore he came to be, he came to be a kind of 
Protestant socialist progressive in a way, and thus uh, the party that uh, was founded in his image and, and, and carrying forward his doctrine was the Progressive Unionist Party. So that was a big change, but I'm sorry to go back to your question directly. They did react to it. The Republicans had generation after generation, going back 100 years or more, of, of, um, of ways of living in prison. And Spence, this intelligent guy, he worked it out and he observed what they did. You've mentioned a couple of times the kind of, and obviously it's a theme of the trilogy is is this kind of long continuity of Irish Republican experience, Sean. But a lot of scholars have have kind of reflected on on the post nineteen sixty nine unique nature really of the provisional IRA, and you've also hinted at that in terms of the changing uh, sort of social outlooks of prisoners. I think at one point you talk about you know the interest in football and that kind of thing, which would have been, uh, you suggest, unusual in an earlier time. Do you see the post-1969 IRA and the way it experiences imprisonment as uh, distinct from earlier generations, or is there a fundamental continuity that's more important there? It's very important to stress the fact that the IRA and all its Republican offshoots are obsessed with the notion of legitimacy. Their legitimacy arises from... um, the foundation of the first independent state, and their claim to be the true inheritors uh, of that state. So, and they need that. They need it for theological reasons, believe it or not. They need it in a believing society to be able to issue an order to kill somebody, and for the person who carries out the order to kill to be able to say, I carried out the order of a legitimate governmental body. So one of the first things they do when people are induced, uh, inducted into the IRA is to convey this history of legitimacy. Uh, so there is that, and and I think they are obsessed by that, and I give lots of details about how that apostolic handing, o- handing over from generation to generation is done. The second thing, however, is these were young men of their time, uh, and young women of their time, but mainly young men we're talking about who only ever a handful of young women or a few handfuls of young women involved in it. Uh, And, of course, everything was happening on the outside. I mean, rock and roll had come, youth culture had come, uh, and the radicalization of the 1960s, of which I was very much a part as a student myself. And I remember talking to a prominent paramilitary leader, and he said we were reading Franz Fanon, and we were reading Che Guevara, and we were reading Marcuse, and so on and so on. This is what students in the outside world on campuses across Europe were reading at the time. So I think that the youth culture and its huge impact, its impact on music and dress and everything else, certainly had an impact. If you'd gone back a couple of generations, their fathers would have been doing Irish dancing, would certainly never have played soccer or been interested in soccer or anything like that. It was a foreign game. So there was a big cultural change. But the fun, the political part of it is we are the inheritors uh, of um, of the first and second Doyles, and you know we are carrying out the will of the Irish people, proclaimed at Easter 1916, reaffirmed in those elections to the Doyle, and usurped by the Irish government and the British government ever since. That is fundamental to the Republican message. And in terms of those narratives and the way Irish republicanism understands the world and presents the world. I mean, it's clear that the prison story has a very prominent part to play. And if you look at contemporary Sinn Féin commemorations, again, obviously things like the hunger strikes loom very large there. And I just wonder how much you think that is because, in a sense, within the context of Northern Ireland, the prison context helps Irish republicans frame the conflict in the way that makes sense to them. Because in the prison you can boil it down to the Irish Republican prisoner standing against the force of the state. It actually goes back to something that, in a way that, that Maggie, I think, was hinting at. Loyalism can be removed from that story quite easily in lots of ways, that that it cuts to this issue, as they see it, of the Irish Republican standing against the British state with loyalism marginalised. So, so do you think that prison, that's one of the reasons that prison is so important within that kind of Republican worldview? Oh, I think so. I think you're absolutely right. And um, they, almost any Republican prisoner will be able to list uh, the, the people who suffered in prison before him. They see themselves as 
part of an uh, of of an honourable company of those who went out to suffer for Ireland. I mean, it is a classic nationalist message, which you'll find in in many many nationalist cultures. So to follow on from Martin's question there, Sean, I wanted to address this idea about education for Republicans in the prison system. And part of this is, of course, to make sure that members of the movement feel they are a part of a broader organization and to understand the background of that movement. But at the same time, some of it is to show that they're not common criminals, of course, that they have this history and they have this understanding And we can kind of see this sort of pushback against this idea of being common criminals in May's prison escapes or in any of the prison escapes. I mean, we have the Kremlin kangaroos beforehand, but the 1983 May's prison escape is really, you know, sort of a middle finger to the system to show, you know, we can break out of this, the highest security prison in Europe. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the 1983 May's prison break. I mean, the secret history of the peace talks and and the true state of affairs has not been written and uh, it probably won't be written certainly in my generation and maybe the next one um but it was apparent uh, this is a very interesting issue that you're raising i think that the the strip strike that turned into this remarkable dirty protest uh, they like to call it, incidentally, the no-wash protest because they didn't like the image and was followed by the hunger strike. I think at that point, with varying degrees of self-awareness, both the British and the uh, the IRA were aware that an end had been reached. And what you get in the prison after 1983 is a standoff. I mean, the hunger strike, in a sense, was... It was about how prisons are controlled. The strike was never really about uniforms. It was about who runs the prisons. Uh, The British wanted to run them. That's understandable. The IRA was determined to wrest control from them. I think by 1983, there was a standoff. And the standoff basically was, you run the prison inside. We're not going to let you get out. But that's it. Uh, And I think peace talks then, with whatever degree of cohesion, were underway, even if it was only thinking about peace and beginning to envisage peace. At that point, escapes um, probably had some operational significance. I mean, it was handy to get people outside who could continue to make bombs, plant bombs, carry out shootings. But um, the IRA surely recognised by the early 80s that the British were not going to be forced into the sea. This was not another Aden. They were going to be nobody was going to be lifted off the embassy roof in the centre of Belfast, and therefore escapes really became part of the proclamation of we are still in business, and it became the the escapes also became a means of enthusing the movement, keeping it coherent, and you could even argue if you had a devious cast of mind that the escapes promoted peace because the Republican leadership needed to maintain credibility to carry peace forward, and escapes enable that leadership to retain that credibility. You've raised the interesting question there, Sean, of the relationship between what's happening in the prison and and eventually the peace process. And I, I totally understand your caveat. Um, and, and it may seem slightly odd to, to cop that in, in a book of a thousand pages, there's, there's perhaps not enough attention to the, that final um, period. But it did strike me that that, that was um, something that you, you had less to say on in your book about the role of the prisons in uh, and the role of the prisoners in encouraging rethinking of the conflict in terms of Irish republicanism and the way that they saw things and perhaps encouraging a new openness, a new, a new willingness to compromise perhaps. And and I just wondered if you have anything more to say on that issue. I mean, do, do you think there is a significant role played by prisoners that feeds into the peace process? How do you see that dynamic working? Yeah, I guess one of the reasons that I say that the true story is not known and won't be known for another generation was that I did try very hard to get at it. And maybe I didn't try hard enough or skillfully enough or whatever, but I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't work out. Uh, the direct connections, the direct connections. And I certainly couldn't get the kind of of evidence, either in testimony or in um, in documents that I was looking for. And therefore, I, I just couldn't handle it. It would, 
it had really been quite speculative. I also got a very strong sense, which I've retained ever since, that Adams was right when he said the IRA has not gone away, you know. And that applied to my scholarship and to any scholarship in the movement. They have very tightly controlled the narrative. Now, I've interviewed a considerable number uh, of former IRA men. And I've got to tell you there are two limitations. I mean, I interviewed some who'd fallen off the wagon and who'd taken a different course either since release or while they were actually in prison. But those, uh, I got a very strong impression that the party line was well understood. It continued to be enforced and people were permitted to speak to me. I mean, I had to go and get permission to speak to people uh, and people had to get permission to speak to me that the, uh, the party line was very, very tightly controlled. So any notion that I had that I could probe under the skin of what they're prepared to let me see, it was unrealistic. And that being the case, I could not really uh, get to the issue of what kind of communications there were. I mean, other than the ones that became public towards the very end, uh, you know, those are in the public record. Uh, but before that, I didn't get any real sense that uh, I could convey to the reader uh, about what was going on, about their most intimate thoughts. Yeah, and I think that speaks to something that we've already discussed, which is the enduring difficulty of of identifying, quote-unquote, the truth. Um, and, of course, you can make the same point as regards to the state as well, that, that exactly. we still only know elements of what the state has put into the public domain. Archive releases are controlled, carefully so, and we perhaps only still have a fraction of that secret war that was ongoing um, for 30 years or so. Sean, I, I know this is a book, of course, that is almost a thousand pages in length, but I did want to ask, and I always love to ask this of any any author, was there some sort of anecdote or story that you weren't able to include in the book that you'd like to share with us now? I mean, I love stories and anecdotes, and I hope that came over in the book. I, 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 got, I got many more than, than I ever could um, uh, use. There are two parallel stories here. One is um, is Gusty Spence, who was, uh, as I say, I think a bigot. I mean, in later life, he went out of his way to say he wasn't. And in many ways, what he said and even what he did showed a change of heart and a change of orientation. But one of the things that changed him was a Catholic uh, prison officer in Crumlin Road Prison. And he apparently spoke to him and, and explained things to him and just had a human relationship with him. I imagine that Spence told me changed, helped to change his outlook. At one point, Spence wanted to get a message to his family. And this Catholic prison officer went into a very, very orange area of Belfast to deliver a, a message to Spence's family for him. So that was one story. It kind of filled me with a little bit of hope. Uh, and the second one was uh, a man that I interviewed a, f a few times, Paddy Joe McLean, who was a special needs teacher um, who had been involved with an earlier incarnation of the IRA, a splinter group called Sir Ola, uh, in the early 1950s. It was picked up in this hopelessly inaccurate internment roundup in August 1971. And he was badly beaten and badly tortured. And he said... You know, I, he was an educated man. He said, I didn't see how they could let me live because I was going to tell this when I got out. Anyhow, he comes back to Belfast prison um, and uh, he's badly, badly injured. And a Protestant prison officer whom he knew hired a taxi and took a message to Cardinal Conway about the interrogation in depth, the torture. Uh, and Conway then contacted He's the Prime Minister. I mean, both those stories of people reaching across sectarian divides encouraged me. As you as you look back now on your account of uh, the imprisonment of Irish politically motivated prisoners, do you think there are kind of lessons to be learned from this, I guess? Um, it's always a dangerous thing, I know, to kind of ask historians. But in terms of how a state tries to handle politically motivated prisoners... Um, and a, a couple of points you kind of hint at this um, 
when you sort of draw draw in a kind of parallel with the war on terror. And if anything, I think you, you you're basically suggesting that that nothing's been learned. That the, the same mistakes we see post two thousand and one, in a sense, echo those that we see in 1970, 1971 from the British state. And so, just thinking a bit more along those lines, are there lessons to be learned from this, and how a state handles this kind of issue? I think that there there are. I mean, I'm not vain enough to imagine that I know all of them, but one of them is is do not act in a way that permits imprisonment to become a process of moral transformation. Do not turn perpetrators into victims, into martyrs. Uh, because one of the uses of uh, imprisonment for paramilitary organizations, for terrorist organizations, uh, is the dramaturgical resource that it confers. You can turn people, and I mean, Maggie, you mentioned the Armagh women, um, you can turn them so easily into victims, all to be projected all over the world and to project a message. You must treat, you must continue to treat people in a decent kind of way, as decently as you possibly can inside. And there's not a single person who was in their adult years uh, when 9-11 took place and the Guantanamo roundups began to um, be projected onto the stage who was not astonished at pictures of gigantic U.S. Marines looming over detainees in orange jumpsuits or wheeling them around in wheelbarrows. And you ask yourself, who took these photographs and what was their intention? They projected this all over the world so much that Islamic terrorists, before they cut people's heads off, um, dressed them in orange jumpsuits. For goodness sake, don't go down that route of projecting and having reprojected at you an ill treatment of prisoners. Sean, I just wanted to say that this... This book is a fantastic achievement. It's, you know, the fact that you've not just this book, but a trilogy of these books is an incredible addition to what we know about prisons during really this period of Irish history more broadly, and also during the conflict in Northern Ireland. And that is really commendable, the way that you have gone and looked at these sources and had these conversations to give us this view of the prisons is impressive and so helpful to scholarship, myself included. Well, thank you very much indeed. And on that note, I think it's time to draw our discussion to a close. Thank you to both of my guests, uh, Dr. Maggie Skull and Professor Sean McConville, for joining me today and to all of you for listening. You can find the Myland Institute on all social media channels. And if you sign up to the mailing list on our website, you'll be the first to hear about future activities. I'm Martin Frampton, and that was the Myland Institute podcast.